Good morning. This is Mike Mayo. Welcome to Money Management. We're here every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy. And we've got a bunch to talk about this week. So before we get too far into it, we will do the uh, data dump to tell you how the markets ended yesterday. And then we'll get into the, uh, how would I say, news stories. Right now, uh, or not right now, but yesterday the Dow closed at 36,100. That was higher by 179 points. S&P ended at 46.82, the Nasdaq at 15,860, the Russell 2000 closed the week at 24.12, gold settled at 18.62 an ounce, silver was at 25.21 an ounce, crude closed at 80.79 a barrel, the 10-year jumped up to 1.57%, and soft white wheat also higher at 10.80 a bushel. So, in the week, though, to get to those numbers, we, actually, week over week, we were down a little bit, I mean, on the Dow and S&P and stuff, but just fractionally. And we did have a Veterans Day holiday, which uh, had the market running kind of uh, just a little light on Thursday. So, and not too much to be gathered from the week's activities in that sense. A couple uh, just general news items. Uh, the IRA contributions won't be going, excuse me, limits won't go up next year. Uh, if you're using a traditional or a Roth, the uh, 2022 limit on contributions is still going to be 6000 That hasn't changed since 2019. And the catch-up contribution for folks over 50 uh, is not all, excuse me, not subject to an annual cost of living adjustment. So that remains at $1,000 as well. However, folks who are saving with a 401k, 403b, most of the 457 plans and a TSP plan can now contribute up to $20,500 in uh, 2022. That's a $1,000 increase from this year. And the catch-up contribution, uh, 50 or older, uh, stays at $6,500. Now, the contribution for a simple IRA that's uh, the retirement plans for small business with 100 or fewer employees. Also increased for next year. It jumps from 13.5 to 14,000. But uh, as with the 401k plans, the contribution limit for folks at least 50 who are in a simple plan stays put at $3,000. Now there was a little bit of stock news this week. Yeah, just a bit. Um, but just so you know, According to Refinitiv, 81% of the S&P 500 companies that have reported the results so far for the third quarter have topped analyst expectations. Somehow the news doesn't like to give you that impression. And Alphabet, better known as Google, uh, joined Apple and Microsoft in topping $2 trillion in market value. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> It had had only a one, only quote unquote, a one trillion dollar market value uh, in January of 2020. So you're seeing that uh, for those companies, it's rewarding their growth and their prospects for growth. So that's the way it is. GE said it's going to split into three companies. Uh, it's going to have aviation, healthcare, and power. They'll split them into three publicly traded companies sometime next year. 
Johnson & Johnson also planning to break itself up into two companies. It's splitting its consumer business from its pharma medical device company. Uh, and they're going to do theirs next year as well. Now the story that intrigues me the most from this week is this Rivian deal. It's a startup electric truck manufacturer. Had one of the largest initial public offerings in years on Wednesday. They, they raised $12 billion. Now here's the kind of rub, the thing that kind of makes me go, hmm. The company's been around for 12 years, and then it's being hailed as the next Tesla, of course. Tesla went public in 2010, and it was valued at $1.7 billion. Now, Rivian sales have been almost only to its own employees, and it projected at most a million dollars in revenues for the third quarter. Now, Wednesday, and nonetheless, that's last Wednesday, it raised nearly $12 billion, valuing the company at more than $77 billion. And they, <laughs> the shares kept going because a lot of investors came flying in, and now it has a market value of $120.5 billion, making Rivian the fifth largest automaker in the world by market value. It's worth as much as Ford and GM. Now, rub your head on that one. So it's obvious uh, we live in the age of free money and apparently endless government subsidies. That's the only way to explain a $100 billion stock offering by this outfit. Now, I have nothing to do with their product. I know nothing about it. It's just the numbers. The electric trunk, they've delivered 156 vehicles. Here's the catch. The investors are betting the government won't let it fall. Now, GM recorded $122 billion in revenues and sold 6.8 million vehicles, and its market cap is $89 billion. Excuse me. So, the uh, stock, Rivian stock, closed at $122.99. That was up 58% from Wednesday. And so we're watching the government literally underwrite a new industry before our eyes, uh, steering capital to the electric vehicle makers no matter what. And then we had the infrastructure bill. Now, the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill was passed by the Senate this summer, and it's going to generate extra spending for, anyway, highways, mass transit, airports, water systems, Amtrak, broadband, electric vehicle charging, and, and renewable, in quotes, energy. You know, this kind of spending shifts resources from the efficient private sector to the wildly inefficient public sector. And to the extent that this is paid by Federal Reserve money printing, it'll help push inflation higher. However, the somewhat good news is that this bill did not, did not create new entitlements and is really just a small part of the total nominal GDP over the next 10 years. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget puts that number at $282 trillion. The larger partisan plan to raise taxes and create new entitlements continues to lose momentum, thank heavens. Right now, the odds of passage of this much more economically harmful legislation are at less than 50%, in part because of the recent election results. Now, for those of you who weren't investing at the time, nobody thought the 80s and 90s was a golden age. In the early 80s, Treasury bond yields were at 13%, inflation at 12%. Stocks dropped 22% and 
single day in October 87, our one day sale. Bonds tanked in 94 and stocks of course have been hit again 90, 94 and subsequently. Now when stocks were valued at seven times earnings as they were in 1982, I can assure you only the most astute investors wanted to own them. Everyone else had already bailed. The uh, Most people spent the 80s and 90s drastically underexposed to stocks, mixing out the returns that look so attractive in hindsight. Now, businesses do tend to retain their uh, value during inflationary periods simply because they can push that inflation through higher prices to their customers. And while this isn't true of every business in every circumstance by any stretch, Inflation isn't as scary for stocks as you may have initially been led to believe. Stocks, real estate investment trusts, trusts, and privately owned real estate, not your house, tend to preserve their purchasing power even though higher periods of through higher periods of inflation. Now that idea makes sense given that those assets are all based on payments made to businesses or landowners. Therefore, if the payments start going up due to inflation, the value of those businesses and land and property should go up as well. On the other hand, those assets that tend to do poorly during periods of higher inflation are those assets that pay their investors fixed payments over time. And you know who those guys are, the bonds and those kinds of things. As inflation ramps upward, these fixed payments tend to lose their purchasing power, which is not good for long-term investors and causes the underlying asset to decline in value as well. After this first break, uh, which is coming up shortly, I'll get into some economic news that came out this week. But I'm going to be spending most of the broadcast talking about inflation and hopefully giving you some facts to... Uh, deal with some of this uh, hyperbole that's coming across the airwaves as typically happens in times like this. Did you know, were you aware, that 74% of Americans say that now is a good time to find a quality job? I think those 74% of folks are spot on because there's, gosh knows, I mean, with the, the uh, job openings, uh, having 1.4 more jobs available than there are people looking for them. Uh, yeah, you can pretty much uh, pick a job that you want to do. Uh, now, the producer price index, that measures wholesale prices, that's an inflation at the manufacturer level, was up 8.6% from a year ago in October. That was anticipated. That's why uh, when that news came out, the market basically went, yeah, okay. It was their highest pace in record going back nearly 11 years. That's from the Labor Department. And yeah, it was. But again, it, it, I'm going to help you put this in context, hopefully, as we go forward here. Now, the consumer price index, that's inflation at our level, uh, also increased in October. The so-called core price index, that takes away the food and energy components because they're all over the board typically every month. So that uh, um, core price index was up 4.6% in October. That's the biggest increase since 1991. Now, they were broad-based, higher costs for new and used cars and trucks, energy, furniture, rent, medical care. Uh, however, prices fell for airline fares and alcohol. Um, Laura Rosner Warburton, you know Laura. Anyhow, she's senior economist at Macro Policy Perspective. She thinks the U.S. is entering a six-month period of unusually high inflation. 
Laura says, I do think we're moving into a new phase where inflation is broader and where things are going to get a little more intense. Part of that reflects the supply chain bottlenecks that aren't resolved going into the holiday season when a lot of purchases get made and that the economy is doing real well, so you have strong demand, unquote. Now, that infrastructure bill, then again, whether it's good or bad news, will probably depend on your political persuasion, but for stocks, it largely renders the bill a non-event. So does the fact that nothing here was a surprise. The Senate bill, as we've talked, has been a known quantity for months. Stocks digested and moved on from it long ago. And the bill's impact on total global demand for metals is probably negligible. And I think kind of one thing that's in the back of everybody's mind, too, is a new presidential administration in 2024 could, in fact, replace this initiative with one of its own, which then a subsequent administration could later undo, and so on, and so on, and so on. So what that means in American is you can see a lot of potential for much of this money to get stuck in legislative and bureaucratic limbo. So, moving right along. I want to get into this inflation thing. Now, one of the things I think is an issue, this is my own opinion, is that we're having uh, perception issues, perception challenges. What does all this inflation mean? Why, you know, and, and since the media has now uh, moved the bug news off the headlines, all they can spell is inflation, and they are inundating us with all kinds of stories and conclusions and who knows what about it. Um, now remember, we haven't had much inflation at all for the last 10 years. One of the things that I think is at the root of all this heavy breathing around it is that it's here now more noticeable than it has been. And that's it. It's not so much, inflation's always there. I mean, you know, the average going back to 1920s in the U.S., average annual inflation up 3%. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was higher, as we said earlier. But for the most part, the last, I don't know, 10 years has been pretty much a non-event. Now, in spite of what's before them, in spite of the facts that are happening around them, and which to me kind of reinforces the fact that a lot of this is emotional, which doesn't change the fact that it has an effect. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But a Gallup poll in October, this, this October, said that 68% of the folks that responded said they thought economic conditions were getting worse. The share who bought things, who thought things were getting better, was lower than in April of 2009, when the global financial crisis was still underway. How they compare today to that is, that see again, this is not logic, this is emotion. The, the reasons seem to be tied to the psychology of inflation and the way folks assess their economic well-being, as well as the uneven effects that rising prices and shortages have on different families. You know, this whole thing is just... How does it affect you from what you buy to do what you do and how you do it? And it may also be shaped by the psychological scars of all this bug stuff. And one manifestation of this being <laughs> people are pretty exhausted and I don't need any more hassle and aggravation, okay? You know, and also consumer confidence, uh, this was just yesterday, it was 
reported at a 10-year low in November. That's from the University of Michigan. Um, they say inflation climbed to the highest level since the early 1990s. Now, again, these are month by month. This is not a whole big trend. That's the other thing that's being lost in the wash. And so this complicates efforts from the policymakers to sell the case that the current stage uh, of price increases is, in fact, temporary. Now, we'll see. Now, Richard Curtin, he's the uh, University of Michigan survey chief economist, he said, Consumer sentiment fell in early November to its lowest level in a decade due to an escalating inflation rate and growing belief among consumers that no effective policies have yet been developed to reduce the damage from surging inflation, unquote. Well, there certainly haven't been any policies put in place. Um, <laughs> well, that, that's for another time. But uh, so the inflation index, okay, over the last three years, we've, it's only averaged 2.8%. Okay, 2.8%. Again, the average, it's been 3% going back to the 1920s. Higher prices have arrived at the same time, probably not coincidentally, as the surge in federal spending has inflated our bank accounts. Now, individual Americans seem to be relatively optimistic when asked more narrowly about the outlook for their own incomes or for the job market. See, it's how you phrase the surveys a lot of times will affect how the answers come back to you. But uh, Lynn Franco, Senior Director of Economic Indicators at the Conference Board, says they tell us, many individual Americans, looking ahead that they expect business conditions to get better, they expect more jobs, and they expect incomes to rise. Unquote. I agree with all of that. But we got to get through this uh, uh, time of confusion here in the meantime. Any group of individuals might end up better or worse off in a time of elevated inflation, depending upon whether they're debtors or creditors, and whether their wages are rising faster or slower than the goods they buy. The uh, sudden halt and choppy restart of the global economy explains much of the prices moves since early last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, big numbers get big headlines, right? And yes, prices are higher. But you also got wage increases that are just about the same as inflation. It's not the same uh, adjusted for inflation, but pretty close. So inflation is definitely real. The effect isn't quite as severe as most people seem to think as a result of being bombarded with these headlines and sound bites and wailing and gnashing and uh, whatever else these people do to help get you concerned. So you'll watch after their commercials to hear what they're going to say. Um, now, we're going to go into more detail about inflation and some of the things that are going on and investments you might want to look at uh, to help uh, position yourself. The global central banks ha have this challenge of trying to pick a path that will curb inflation but not choke off growth. You know, they got to navigate the process of getting economies off those extraordinary measures such as rock bottom interest rates and these bond buying programs that were deployed to support their economies. Now the surge in our consumer demand over the past year, which has been turbocharged by these trillions in stimuli, has ricocheted outward and caused disruptions to the global supply chain. While producers are hampered, demand has been amplified, increased by an M2 money supply that's 38% above pre-COVID levels. 
Now, M2 is basically all the cash that's floating around out there, checking accounts, money markets, CDs, the whole thing. And so it's up by 35%. <clears throat> so what do we got? And, you know, the surge in consumer demand over the past year is, uh, you know, supply chains, well, they're the issues that have been... Uh, caused by the demand will ultimately prove temporary. However, this huge supply in the money, excuse me, huge increase in the money supply is uh, what's going to drive inflation over the long term. And that's not a good thing. So as uh, Nobel Prize winner Dr. Milton Friedman said, Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. What that means is too much money chasing too few goods. It is just another variation on the supply-demand thing. You know, you've got a lot of money. That's the supply. Excuse me. That's the demand. And the supply has been messed up. That's a technical term. And so when you can't get all the supply you want, the prices go up for what's out there. Now, the cost of food has risen 5.3% year over year. Appliances up 6%. New cars and trucks are 9.9% higher than they were a year ago in October. And furniture and, and bedding up 12%. Now, all of those cost increases are well above historical averages. And none, however, compared to what's gone on at the gas pump. Crude oil has just, I think this last week, hit a new seven-year high pump prices up almost 50% in just the last 12 months. The uh, CRB Commodities Index, which covers all of the uh, base commodities, is hitting new highs. Base metals pushing up against all-time highs. The poor harvest in spring wheat and concern over the winter crop has also pushed prices in that of the grain to their highest levels in years. And now, on to this, you add that prices for ethanol, that's that corn additive thing that they put into gasoline, that's up about 50% year-to-date on the Board of Trade. Uh, and, and according to the AAA, the nationwide average price for gas is the highest it's been since 2014. And since everything we buy has to get to the store or your house in some sort of vehicle that runs on gasoline or diesel, Higher gas prices mean higher prices for everything else, in addition to our supply shortages and higher consumer demand. GasBuddy, that's a company that tracks uh, gas price information at 150,000 stations around the U.S. and Canada. They found that the average price of regular gas in the U.S. Uh, was about $2.20 a gallon at the start of this year. And this past week, the average U.S. price is $3.42. In Spokane, it's 335, Coeur d'Alene, 325, and 350 in Seattle. You're going <laughs> to have a hard time finding $3.50 gas in Seattle, though. Uh, in any case, uh, the big question on the pickup in inflation is to what extent it's going to continue. The big challenge is that answer won't be clear until the beginning of next year at the earliest. So now the economists are telling us that they're seeing inflation. Well, congratulations. Thanks for sharing. We did get the memo. And some people just aren't real happy about it. But for us, you know, we don't really care much either way. That's because we're not making uh, 
nothing out of it. It's just because there's always some sort of inflation going on. You've got inflation, disinflation, stagflation, deflation. There's inflation for everybody. And, and so there's opportunities to profit in every type of market, no matter what. You know, there's an old phrase in the business that uh, there's a bull market in something somewhere. And that's what you need to be focused on. Now, the folks at Goldman, Goldman Sachs say they see the first quarter of, uh, excuse me, the fourth quarter of this year having inflation at about 4.3%, but into next year, it's going to drop to 2.1%. Now, the higher inflation in the near term means the economy is at a significant risk of a Fed rate hike in early next year. Goldman uh, places themselves on the supply side of the debate because they say semiconductor manufacturing is picking up. Increased imports of furniture and other consumer goods will help drive down prices, as they will. And however, as the chip manufacturing picks up and increased imports in those other consumer goods come through, you can see those prices be driven lower as well. Persistently higher inflation, which has been triggered by the faster than anticipated, but uneven economic recovery, trillions of dollars in pandemic-related government stimuli and other factors have been hitting the consumer's wallets. At the same time, the rebounding economy and healthy household balance sheets are both helping to support demand while also helping to cushion price increases. You know, we've got an unusual economy right now in that our current challenge isn't a lack of jobs by any stretch, but shortages, inflation, and daily disruption caused by the lockdowns. Unusually high demand, boosted by a long stretch of government stimuli and improving job market, is a crucial factor in driving higher inflation. And some of, you know, some of the dangers, it's really dangerous because Whatever other gains are made in wages and so forth can be wiped out by inflation. And so that damages the buying power of your savings. As long as the Fed keeps interest rates low, it's going to be hard for folks who have savings to make the kinds of returns that they need for income. It's, I don't think that's exactly a breaking news item. High inflation is about as corrosive a factor in American life as you can imagine. But folks, at these levels, this is not high inflation. Okay, this is not embedded inflation. This is month-to-month -month stuff. And so that's why you got to be careful. You don't get too uh, caught up in the negativity of it. It's remained mostly in the background for the past few years, and now it's back. Just because it's been MIA, missing in action, is why it's getting so much more attention, in my opinion. You know, this inflation episode will probably last until the Fed decides to tighten monetary policy an event which is still far in the future. Unfortunately for the current administration, it carries the blame for higher inflation, while unfortunately for us, as consumers, we carry the burden of paying for the Fed's mistake. Now, the explosion of the U.S. money supply since March of 2020, well, it's unprecedented. I think that's understated by just a bit, and though we're hardly talked about. There are now some $4 trillion of extra money, and if you've got any of that, you can feel free to send it to me. Uh, $4 trillion of extra money sitting in bank checking savings accounts throughout the country. At first, all this extra money was fine because uh, the public demanded safety of money. They just wanted it to, you know, I want to be able to reach out and touch it, so to say. And, and funny how the surge in transfer payments in the uh, wake of the 
2008-9 recession coincided with the beginning of a big drop in labor force participation and how the same thing happened last year in the wake of massive wave of lockdown payments. Big transfer payments are thus just one reason the economy is likely to grow at subpar pace going forward. Millions of our most productive, most productive workers are still staying home, whether retired or living off their lockdown era savings. Now, uh, the dollar been fairly steady against other currencies, but commodity prices have taken off. The explanation for that is the global economy has rebounded very strongly from the slump, resulting in strong demand across the board for industrial commodities. And this is reinforced by strong capital goods orders in the U.S. and a noticeable increase in manufacturing activity. So inflation of and to itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. That means you're growing. Now, economists generally expect the upper pressure on inflation from these supply constraints we're enduring to fade over the next year as consumer demand for goods eases, we get production ramping up, and workers return. However, these same economists also anticipate those to be replaced by other sources of price pressure. Those would include rent and medical care that tend to be more persistent and therefore are key to anticipating inflation's future path. Rent is particularly important because it accounts for one-third of the consumer price index. After remaining subdued most of this and last year, rental costs have really started to accelerate. Commodity prices also in general have been on the rise. The messed up supply chain and increased input costs for crops have sent agricultural prices higher. Refineries have been producing more fuel but haven't been able to keep up with the demand. So supply is quite short in several areas. And it's a testament, I believe, to the impossibility of trying to manage an economy from the top down. You can't do it. Governments can easily put the economy into a medically induced coma at the drop of a hat. They call that a lockdown. Shutting down is all too easy. Restarting, which the politicians didn't really think through, I don't think, is quite another matter, especially outside the laptop work-from-home world. When businesses were forced to shut or operate at minimum capacity for a long time, they had to cut overhead to survive. That meant laying off workers, shutting facilities, running down their inventories. And when you don't know how long these lockdowns are going to last, it's kind of tough to plan. And so this occurred up and down the supply chain. And you can't do that overnight. Rebuilding is it takes time and money. So does increasing production to meet resurgent demand. A farmer that beefs up his cattle herds today in response to high meat prices won't be able to really participate for a year at least. And who knows if the prices will still be high. Similarly, it can take months for a new oil well to translate into new gasoline flowing from refineries. But there's strong indications that this situation is going to even out sooner than later, particularly on the energy side. Our rig count is up, and domestic production rose to 11.5 million barrels a day per week, excuse me, per day last week. That's its year-to-date high, and it should rise further as more rigs come back online. Now, please understand, rising supply of whatever doesn't mean the CPI, Consumer Price Index, will fall. But it does mean that the big month-to-month -month re uh, increases 
should soon become a thing of the past with prices growing more slowly from a higher base. That's not great, but it's the normal course of things when price increases work their way through an economy. The mechanics of all this are about as old as economics itself and not at all a surprise to stocks, which know how the plumbing works, if you will. You don't have to call it transitory inflation if you don't want to, but it is the technical definition of that word. You know, rising inflation hasn't really been incorporated into any of the sticky prices of the economy. The financial market's 30-year break-even inflation rate at 2.35% is a half a percentage point above where it settled in the second half of the 2010s, but that rate is also similar to the first half of this decade and slightly below the level that would be consistent with the Fed Fund's inflation rate of 2% a year. Now, I'm not trying to, again, make light of inflation, but it's not as, I don't know what the good appropriate radio word would be, but it's not as intrusive as it was in the 70s and 80s when it was, you know, uh, 8 10% all the time, not just one month at a time. That's a whole nother way of doing things. We're not headed that way by, by any stretch. You know, the past is easy because you know what happened. The future is messy since we can only be certain that the future is always uncertain. So from a forecasting point of view, this year has been simple. We had solid economic growth, higher inflation, a bull market for stocks. We've been saying that all throughout the year. Next year, the Fed's still pumping money. Interest rates will remain low. And the economy continues to add back the jobs it lost during lockdowns. Now, at the same time, polls and election results show a backlash against bigger government. So for this next year, we watch with cautious optimism. Almost all investors eventually fall into the trap of comparing the way things are today with the way they used to be. Not a good idea, because the present is really nothing like the past. No one knows how they'll respond to risk and setback until it's happening to them. Time and again, we see investor preferences are pretty fickle, and that uh, things a big chunk of society would have thought unthinkable, I don't know, like wearing masks everywhere, can quickly be embraced when the economy changes direction. So, we really have no idea what policies we'll be pushing for in five or ten years. How could we? Hard times make people do and think things they'd never imagine when things are calm. Your personal views fall for the same trap. In investing, following the I'll be greedy when others are fearful, that's a whole lot easier said than done. People underestimate how much their views and goals can change when markets break. A gentleman named Bill Seidman, who used to run the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, once said, You never know what the American public's going to do, but you do know that they'll do it all at once. Now, Brent Schutte, uh, he's a chief investment strategist at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. He offers this, We think investors will see inflation abate in the coming months. As the Fed remains accommodative, people come back into the workforce, consumers shift from buying goods to services, and we expect that will pull the market higher as we move toward the end of this year. J.P. Morgan's David Lebovitz said yesterday, We're expecting economic growth to accelerate here into the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. Craig Johnson, senior technical research analyst at Piper Sandler, says, Technology still remains among the best performing on a relative basis compared with others, 
his firm has overweight recommendations on tech, energy, and financials. And I think most analysts are in those three categories rather heavily. And Tocqueville Asset, Manager, uh, Asset Management Portfolio Manager John Petridis said, I think the best value play here for the recovery are the industrials. As the economy reopens, likely easing supply chain issues and lowering commodity prices should be a huge boom for industrials. He thinks the valuations at current levels are in your favor. So I believe it's too early to worry about the negative consequences of future Fed tightening for stocks in the economy. Except for last year's head fake, every recession has been preceded by very high real interest rates and a flat to negatively sloped yield curve. Neither of, the, neither of these things are going on now. I suggest, as I typically do, that the future looks bright. Unless the Fed doesn't about face soon, it might be years before real interest rates are high enough to actually depress economic activity. We don't know. In the meantime, liquidity is super abundant. The money is out there. Consequently, the outlook for corporate profits is quite positive. The economy is nowhere near the brink of another recession. So please do not be doing the conclusion jumping that leads you to the negative side of the house. You won't be happy. Now in closing, I have to say one thing. Go Zags. Live and in color tonight. Don't miss it. Against the Tejas people. So, I hope you had a great week. I hope this inflation information is helpful to you in understanding what's going on out there. I thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it a lot. We'll be back next week at 9 to talk with you more about what's happened in the marketplace. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Money, money, money.